Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make him known. The Old Testament lesson for today is from 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 21, through chapter 2, verse 1. This can be found on page 266 of your Pew Bible. The story of Hannah, a childless woman, begins earlier in the chapter with her fervent prayer to God for a son. Our reading picks up several years later with Hannah's plans to present her only son to God, who had blessed her in a seemingly impossible way. A reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 1, beginning with the 21st verse. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ff of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. <clears throat> Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Hannah's prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. <coughs> Grace for the generations. This is the name of our current sermon series. As we sat down and looked at this particular section of scripture, as we go through our three-year chronological study of the Bible, we kept reading these stories as we've been doing the last few weeks, and we thought, what is the common theme in these stories? It's the grace of God given to generation after generation after generation after generation. Today we come to a story where we ask the question, what happens, though, when the family tree suddenly stops at an empty womb? How will God respond in his grace to that kind of situation? And what we're going to see in this Grace for the Generations story is that God does answer in the messiness of life, in the pain of loss, and even of barrenness. 
God's grace is still true for the generations in that type of situation. What I want us to do today is open up our Bibles once again. Go ahead, get your physical Bible out, pull it out of the sleeve in front of you. Ted Diner was the first one I saw to pull his Bible. Good job, Ted. Be like Ted. Open up your Bible, just like we did last week with Ruth. I'm serious. I'm not talking about the Bible app on your phone. I'm talking about the Bible with pages. I want you to look at this with us today. I'm going to read a verse, give some commentary, read a verse, give some commentary. It'll be a little bit more like a Bible study than a sermon today. And I'll have three big ideas at the end, three big takeaways for us after we've gone through all of these verses. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Who has a page number for us? 266. Good job. 266. 1 Samuel 1. Go ahead, open it up if you haven't already. The first thing I want you to notice, um, turn the page back one page, and it's the ending of Ruth. I want to just show that because last Sunday we heard the whole story of Ruth, and now we're just turning the page. We're just continuing in our three-year chronological study of the Bible, God's grace for the generations. Today we will encounter this woman named Hannah. So let's go through it verse by verse. As I said, I'll give a little commentary on most of the verses, then we'll see if there's some takeaways at the end. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth. See these generations that are being mentioned here, God's grace being distributed to each one. An Ephrathite. Verse 2. He had two wives. This is where I have to stop and give some explanation. (laughs) He had two wives. There are people, I've heard people say, because the Bible includes things like polygamy and slavery, therefore the Bible endorses such things. Not so. In the case of polygamy, the Bible is clear that the intention of God, the design of God, is that a man would have one wife. The first story we see in Scripture is that Adam has one wife, Eve. It's a man and a wife in marriage. The final story in all of Scripture and Revelation is a metaphor of a bridegroom and a bride, Christ and his church. And every time marriage is prescribed on the stories in between those two bookends, it's prescribed as a man having one wife. There are cases of polygamy in the Bible that are described But as we'll see in today's story, they usually turn out to be a disaster. (laughs) Just wanted to make that clear in case anyone thought we were okaying polygamy here at Sandwich Church. Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now to the original hearers of this story, this would have sounded like Drama being introduced to the narrative. Peninnah had children. Hannah had no children. Now, as we saw in the story of Ruth last week, when you lose your husband in Bible times, you are in serious trouble because the husband was the one who could provide materially for the household. The wife couldn't just, the widow couldn't just go out and get a job somewhere. It's not how things worked in Bible times. So you needed provision from your man during this time. Your sons, on the other hand, they were kind of like your 401k. They would provide for you in the future, after your husband might die eventually or be incapable of working. So if you didn't have sons, you didn't have a financial future. 
Not only that, people believed that if you weren't able to have children, you were somehow cursed, or you must have done some kind of sin to deserve it. So Hannah's in a really painful spot here. She has no children, and yet the other wife does. So it's very obvious the emptiness of her womb and the problem that she faces. Verse 3. Now this man, that's Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. It was traditional at this time, three times a year, households would go up to the tabernacle at Shiloh. This is before the temple was built in Jerusalem. And they would bring animals and other offerings to worship God during these festivals. So the story is just telling us that he's taking his two wives and the children off to one of those festivals to worship God. Where, it says, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Eli is the main priest here at the tabernacle, but he has these two sons who are also priests. And if you read the rest of the narrative in 1 Samuel, you see that uh, Hophni and Phinehas were corrupt priests. They got into all the wrong stuff. If you thought that pastoral and priestly corruption started with Jimmy Baker, you'd be wrong. These priests... Well, you should read the narrative. It's, it's pretty amazing how relevant it seems for today's world when you see pastors and priests fall into sin. They were corrupt priests, and Eli wasn't the greatest priest himself. We continue the story in verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. They would bring a bull or a lamb to sacrifice on the altar at the tabernacle. A sacrifice to God. It's kind of like when we bring our finances and put it in the offering plate. It's a sacrifice for us to give those finances to God, to his kingdom, to the church. In the same way, they would bring their source of wealth, cattle or other things, and they would sacrifice those on the altar. But after the animal was sacrificed, there'd be all this meat. And they would have a feast. They'd have a festival. And it says here that Elkanah would sacrifice the animal to God and he would divvy up portions then to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Now in verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb. Here, Hannah, here, sweetheart. Have two filet mignons. I see you in your pain. I think Elkanah has real compassion and real empathy, real sympathy for his wife Hannah, who it appears that the Lord had closed her womb. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The Lord had closed her womb. This is an interesting common phrase throughout the Old Testament when the Lord is attributed to causing some kind of pain or hardship in the situation. It's really the biblical writer's way of saying the Lord is sovereign over it all. Even in the 10 plagues, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is just saying none of the, th- the bad things that happen don't happen under the sovereign hand of God. So Elkanah gives to Hannah a double portion because he loved her. Now I was reading this and studying for the sermon and I realized something kind of funny. Uh, every Sunday morning when I'm going to preach, Pastor David very kindly prays for me for the preaching, and he says, Lord, today I pray that you'd give Nathan a double portion of your Holy Spirit anointing. <laughs> Elkanah felt sorry for his wife. That's why you pray the double portion for me? You feel sorry for me? I'm that bad of a preacher? We asked for a double portion for Nathan today. 
Maybe it's because you love me, like he loves her. I receive it, brother. Where were we? Verse 6. This is a fascinating phrase to me in verse 6. Look at this. It's talking about Hannah. It says, and her rival. Her rival. Who's that talking about? That's Peninnah. That's the other wife, the one with the children. This is why polygamy is a disaster. (laughs) Your wives become rivals with one another. That sort of makes sense. Listen, I have two kids in my household, two middle school kids, and they're sibling rivals. They bicker from sun up to sun down. (laughs) Why would I introduce a second wife so that they could also bicker in my household? Polygamy is not a good idea, folks. But look at poor Hannah. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her room. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Man, Peninnah does not come off, come off looking so good in this story. Peninnah is the leading character in the real housewives of Ramathim Zophim here. <laughs> Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. This poor woman, Elkanah says, here's a double portion for you, my love. She says, I can't even eat. I'm too upset. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? And then he says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? I think Elkanah probably meant well when he said that. (laughs) There should be a list of things husbands shouldn't say to their wives. This would be on the list. (laughs) I don't measure up for you. Stop crying. And I just wonder what Hannah might have felt in that moment. How can I see you trying so hard to love me, but you can't fill this emptiness, I feel. I need a son. That would make all of my problems go away. This is maybe what she's thinking. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She brought her honest prayers to church. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That no razor touching his head is the Nazarite vow. If you want to know more about that, go back and listen to Gina's sermon from a couple of weeks ago on that. There's a lot of good material in there for us to learn from. But here it says, Hannah vowed a vow. She brought her honest prayer in the messiness of her situation, in the deepness of her pain of having a barren womb. And she vows a vow to God. Here's how the vow sounded. Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I hear these bargain prayers often. As a pastor, I get led into a lot of people's spiritual journeys of things going on in their lives. And I hear these types of prayers. Lord, if you will... Cure me from this disease. I will give you the days on earth that you bless me with after you heal me. I'll devote them to you. Or, Lord, if you allow this business deal to come through, 
I will tithe 10% of the proceeds to the church. I hear these, we vow vows. This is common. We all do this. Even if we're standing on the sidelines of the basketball game and our kids are playing out there in the basketball court, I sometimes see this when you watch college games and the camera pans to the parent. You know, here's the, the kid about to hit the free throw to win the game or lose the game. And what's mom doing? She's praying. She's probably vowing a vow. Lord, if you just let him win this game, I will fill in the blank. We pray like this, don't we? The amazing thing about Hannah, as we're about to see, is that she fulfills her end of the bargain. God fulfills his end, as we're going to see, and so does Hannah. She vows a vow. What verse are we on? Thank you. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her heart, her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. I told you Eli wasn't a good priest. <laughs> the men in the story don't, don't look so great. Eli, you finally have an honest prayer happening in your church. Have you never seen this before? He thinks she's drunk, and he tells her to get out of there. He must have only known the rote prayers. Maybe he had never seen an honest lament that somebody brought into the church. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Eli gets it now. Verse 17, And Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She got it all out there in the sanctuary. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. That's Bible speak for she got pregnant, okay? And the Lord remembered her. Verse 20, and in due time... Hannah conceived and bore a son. Can you believe this? The miracle came. The prayer was answered. The empty womb was filled by God's grace. She has a son. She called his name Samuel. The name Samuel means God hears. That honest, vexed, anxious lament in the sanctuary, God heard that prayer. Even in such a messy household, God heard that prayer and gave her a son. For she said, I've asked him, I've asked for him from the Lord. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip the next couple of verses. The, the boy Samuel grows up, and after he's weaned, he's about three years old. Now it's time for Hannah to bring him back to Shiloh, back to the tabernacle, back with an act of worship. We pick up the story in verse 24. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bowl, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. These are just objects of worship. She's bringing her tithe to the offering plate along with her son. And she brought him, it says, to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. They slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. 
As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, probably Samuel, young Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. Can you imagine this scene? Hannah arrives with her three-year-old son. Eli, do you remember me? You thought I was drunk, but I was praying. I prayed for a son, and look, here he is. Do you remember? I said I would give him to the Lord. And she's dropping him off. <laughs> Eli or Samuel would have been brought into the priestly family of Eli and grown up to become a priest unto the Lord. Now, what Hannah probably had no way of seeing in that moment of sacrificial worship was that God would use Samuel for great purposes that would really change the generations. All the corruption in the priestly line with Hophni and with Phinehas, God would use Samuel to go deal with that corruption, to bring correction to the corruption. Hannah wouldn't have known that. It was future generations that were going to be blessed through her sacrifice to the church in that moment. (coughs) Now, I don't want to ignore the awkwardness of this point of the story. We might be sitting here thinking, she really dropped off her kid at church and left? (laughs) You might be thinking, if I had prayed for a son and it finally came, I, I wouldn't do that. I couldn't do that. I couldn't give up my son. I want to just hold that intention for a couple minutes. Hold that. We're going to come back to it at the end. This feeling, I could probably never do that. Hannah prays this beautiful prayer. You can go home and read it, 1 Samuel chapter 2, this amazing prayer that will be very, uh, almost repeated in a reminiscent way when Mary, the mother of Jesus, prays the Magnificat after Jesus is born. This worshipful prayer. Hannah's worshiping in this moment. So what might be the takeaways? I'm just going to give three briefly. You might think of other big ideas or takeaways from a story like this. I've come up with three as I've prayed about this all week. Here's the first one. No matter how big the mess or deep the pain, God hears our honest prayers. God hears our honest prayers. You can bring your messy, painful prayer to church. I won't accuse you of being under the influence. I'll say, come on, let's all just pray it out. Now, sometimes God doesn't answer the prayer like he did for Hannah. Some of you know that well. Sometimes you say, Lord, if you do this, I'll do that, and he doesn't do what we asked him for. Then what happens? Well, there's lots of stories in the Bible like that. One that comes to mind is when the Apostle Paul in Philippians, when he's in jail, He says, Lord, if you release me from jail, I'll glorify Christ. And if you don't release me from jail, I'll still glorify Christ. And he does. No matter how big the mess or deep the pain, God hears our honest prayers. That's the first takeaway. The other one is, or the next one is, um, when we give to the church, it's an act of worship that will bless future generations. When we give to the church, it's an act of worship. When we give, it counts as a donation on our taxes, but it's not a donation. God's not a charity. He's worthy of our worship. So when we give to him, it's a sacrificial act of worship that will bless future generations. 
Not so long ago, people gave sacrificially and generously to buy this property that we're worshiping on today. Did you see all the pitter-patter of all those little kids' feet when they rushed off to children's church? Those kids weren't even born when those sacrifices were made to build this church. And those little kids' grandkids can worship here someday. When we give to the church as Hannah did, she would have had no way of seeing that Samuel would be used by God to bless future generations. All she knew was to give. It's been so much fun watching over the last year or so as people are giving sacrificially to our Stanford project. The same story is happening again. I mentioned earlier one of these prayers that we tend to pray, Lord, if you let this business deal come through, I'll tithe towards your church. I've even seen some of that come true, where people prayed for success in business so that they could give to Stanford. That's our job, is just to faithfully and sacrificially give things to God. But think about the future generations of people who will meet Christ, who will hear the gospel, who will feel the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in that city of Stanford because of our giving now. We may not even meet those people. When we give to church, it's an act of worship that blesses future generations. That's the second big idea. The third one addresses that tension we maybe felt a few minutes ago. I could never give my son to God, to the church. Well, here's the amazing truth of the gospel. Don't miss this. God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Hannah gave her one and only son God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son conspire together in the heavenlies, looking down at the world and all of its messiness and all of its pain, hearing all of our honest prayers. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Jesus came and he died in our place on the cross. He dealt with all the mess and all the pain and all the sin and all the rebellion. He paid the consequences of our sin. He's done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. What great love. No matter how big the mess or deep the pain, God hears our honest prayers. Giving to the church is an act of worship that will bless future generations. But probably most importantly for us today is what he's done for us. He's given us his one and only son. If there's anybody here who doesn't yet fully believe in Jesus and what happened for you on the cross, the rest of that phrase is that anyone who believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. Let today be the day of salvation for you when you consider what God has done in sending you Jesus Christ. Amen. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.